Welcome to the 33rd episode of Heavier Than I Look, a podcast dedicated to healing, recovery, and storytelling. My name is Kira Russo, and I am your host. If you feel that listening may aggravate your suffering or complicate your recovery, please take this notice as a trigger warning. Discuss with your support system as necessary, and as always, take what you need and leave what you don't. This episode is dedicated to any and all who have been harmed by a projected BMI, who have been told that they are unhealthy or overweight or fat or obese or unlovable because of this faulty measurement. Just as we might abandon a scale in our pursuit of recovery, we might also abandon BMI, however possible, in our pursuit of recovery. I touched on this a bit during HTIL episode 23, celebrating weight gain and body neutrality versus body positivity. Yet I thought this topic deserved more time, which is why we are here today with episode 33, 10 episodes later, Set Point Theory and BMI. Set Point Theory describes a theory of weight maintenance in which one's weight is genetically predetermined in a preferred range, explaining that your body will do what it must in order to maintain this range. The theory stipulates that our body weight is the product of genetic effects, DNA, epigenetic effects, which are heritable traits that do not involve changes in DNA, and the environment. Because of this, if you start eating less, many biological processes will adjust to lessen the possibility of weight loss. Your metabolism will slow down, you will burn fewer calories during physical activity, and your body may change the way it absorbs nutrients. Your hormones might increase to induce hunger by way of your hypothalamus, which gets and adjusts hormones such as leptin and insulin. Our bodies crave, in fact, require this homeostatic weight. While your weight may go up and down, ultimately it aims to return to its preferred range. This is one of the reasons that so many people, 95% in fact, regain weight within three to five years after an initially successful dieting attempt. Quote, Evidence is found in just about every single study using diets. The vast majority of people who try to lose weight on a restrictive diet regain it regardless of whether they maintain their weight or exercise program. This occurs in all studies, no matter how many calories or what proportions of fat, protein, or carbohydrates are used in the diets, or what types of exercise programs are pursued. Many studies show that dieting is a strong predictor of future weight gain, end quote. The body interprets dieting as starvation, as famine. A scarcity leads to activation of sophisticated brain mechanisms to return to its set point. Interestingly, with each attempt at weight loss, the set point may actually increase as a way to protect the body from that threat again. Our bodies remember the trauma of the past, even thousands of years ago, where famine was a possibility or an inevitability, in order to prevent the trauma of the future. The more you try to go below your set point, the harder your body might fight to maintain it. Further, according to set point theory, the normal body set range keeps adjusting upward as time continues, with explain, which explains weight gain with age. This theory is not universally accepted within the medical field, despite many studies demonstrating significant evidence. It is, however, important to note that weight studies are difficult, considering it is hard to control what human subjects eat, so many studies exclusively rely on self-reporting. If we are to take this theory for what it is worth, living your life within your natural set point does not mean you are deemed healthy, according to the BMI metric. In one study, it was shown that 38% of patients who were restricting calories lost their periods while they were still at a normal BMI, as many exhibited symptoms of starvation, such as loss of menstruation, without being clinically underweight. 
It's time to debunk body mass index. BMI is the ratio of your height to your weight, yet know that it is complete BS. The BMI as a health metric began by a Belgian astronomer and mathematician in the 1830s as a way to quantify subjects for a research study and observe norms based on the bell curve. The measurement does not account for human diversity such as genetics, health history, current health, ethnicity, bone density, muscle mass, diet, or physical activity. In the 1940s, the MetLife Insurance Company began to use the BMI measurement to determine how much to charge their customers for insurance. They came up with the ideal weight charts without any scientifically determined evidence, showing a causal link between weight and mortality. It became the topic of a lobbying campaign which was eventually adopted by doctors, epidemiologists, and the federal government as a way to determine a person's health despite having no legitimate claim to health. In 1998, the federal government lowered the BMI criteria for overweight and obesity, which meant that on the day the criteria changed, 29 million people became overweight and obese who were not considered such the day before. Interestingly, there are many studies that demonstrate that people in the overweight or moderately obese categories live at least as long or longer than those in the normal weight category. The ideal weight for longevity is in the overweight BMI category. I think it is important to interpret BMI from an individual who might be negatively impacted by its designation. Roxane Gay, author of the memoir Hunger, which is going to be a separate episode upcoming, who might be designated as super morbidly obese, says, quote, BMI is a term that sounds so technical and inhumane that I am always eager to disregard the measure. Nonetheless, it is a term and a measure that allows the medical establishment to try and bring a sense of discipline to undisciplined bodies. When people use the word obese, they are offering forth an accusation. The modifier morbidly makes the fat body a death sentence when such is not the case. The term morbid obesity frames fat people like we are the walking dead and the medical establishment treats us accordingly. Studies demonstrate that BMI is not a sufficient indicator of weight designation, and it was accompanied with warning at its inception. In 1972, a study warned against BMI used to calculate an individual's levels of fat. BMI does not distinguish between fat and muscle, which poses specific issues for those who may exist in a more athletically inclined body or when accounting for subtle racial, racial differences. For example, the average football player has a BMI of 31.35, which is considered obese by these faulty standards, despite their health likely of no concern in other contexts. Further, African Americans tend to have more muscle than fat compared to Caucasians, so thus they might have a higher BMI and be termed as unhealthy, when in reality their muscle remains unaccounted for. Paul Larson, an adjunct professor and performance physiologist at the Sports Performance Research Institute in New Zealand, says, quote, We shouldn't be as much worried about weight. What we should really be worried about is the fat part and where your fat is concentrated, end quote. BMI misses that level of detail. BMI becomes more troubling when we recognize its usage outside of a medical context. For example, more than a dozen states started to require schools to chart their students' BMI, even to list them on report cards. And life insurance companies used it as a decisive factor in their policies and risk assessments. Not only may children be negatively impacted as their BMI appears in in their school reports, 
But BMI misses the nuances of puberty, where boys add muscle and girls add fat at a rapid rate. Quote, While the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention calls BMI a reasonable indicator of body fat, the agency does not recommend that doctors, or anyone else for that matter, use it as a diagnostic tool. End quote. Diets fail because our bodies and our weights are genetically predetermined. Our genes code for our build, metabolism, musculature, and height. Everyone has a biologically determined weight range for optimal functioning. These weight ranges are not dictated or determined by BMI categories. When you eat too little, your metabolism and body temperature decreases to conserve energy. Your appetite increases in a short time and your food preoccupation grows. When you eat too much, your body temperature increases and your metabolism increases to burn off excess energy. When you suppress your predetermined weight set point in eating disorders or disordered eating, your physical hunger cues will cease to save energy, yet mental hunger becomes all-consuming. The body's natural response to a conscious or unconscious period of undereating is to eat and try to repair itself. Your body knows where it has to land. And I know that this is easier said than done, but trust it. If you would like to learn more about what sources I used in the discussion of set point theory and BMI, my citations will be placed in the show notes. All new episodes of HTL will be uploaded to Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts by 11.59 p.m. each Sunday night if you miss the live broadcast. Feel free to return to old episodes by visiting these sites. If you would like to listen to my own eating disorder story, you can listen on any of these platforms. Please consider sharing the podcast with family, friends, or those who you feel could specifically benefit. If you or someone you love might be struggling with an eating disorder, know that you have my full support in recovery and consider seeking treatment. If you feel treatment may be inaccessible to you, please consider seeking support through Project HEAL, which is the largest nonprofit in the United States delivering prevention, treatment, financing, and recovery support for those struggling with eating disorders. Disordered eating has ruled my life for nearly six years, and I didn't think anything would ever, would ever be able to come in between that. Treatment did, and treatment does. If you're in a crisis situation, please contact NEDA's helpline by texting NEDA to 741741. HTL has its very own Instagram and Twitter accounts. So if you would like to suggest your own episode topic or interact with the podcast further, please feel free to follow on Instagram at Heavier Than I Look and Twitter at HTL Podcast. If you're interested in sharing your own story as a feature on the show, please direct message me on Instagram or Twitter. Don't be afraid to reach out. I would love to hear from you. My podcast, Heavier Than I Look, aims to empower survivors, educate listeners, and foster conversations surrounding eating disorders and body dysmorphia. Eating disorders demand silence, yet this podcast is an attempt to de-isolate and destigmatize a survivor's experience by giving a voice to each story. We must abandon a quantitative numerical definition of identity and reclaim our self-definition to exist beyond the numbers that rule our lives. In this way, HTL is a space of healing, recovery, and storytelling. Let us no longer wonder how little space we can comprise, but instead wonder how to make that space one filled with love and sympathy. Goodbye for now.